0: Good morning everyone. Welcome this morning. Uh, I apologise for the the way we're doing this but uh, I'm at uh, Wentworth Falls annual congregation meeting and uh, so we're doing this so I hope you can excuse this. Before we start let's pray. Gracious Father, Heavenly Lord, you ask, we ask that as we turn to your word you would help us. Please lead us. In uh, the twists and turns of Gideon and the second part, please uh, encourage us, please convict us, please enthuse us, please give us a greater picture of your lordship and love for us in the person of our saviour, dear Jesus, and Lord, I pray that you would uh, keep me from error. we would ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we're uh, concluding our tale of Gideon this morning. We're coming, we're going to see actually quite a different Gideon emerge than the one we saw last week. Last week, we uh, saw Gideon as a very unsure judge, judge being the one that God raises up to save his people, Israel. You remember that Gideon needed to be doubly sure of what God wanted him God had wanted him to do. You remember the fleece and how it happened once and then twice. There's a sense of amazement, sometimes frustration, confusion about what's going on when Gideon does these things. You need to notice those things when you read Uh, text, uh, the narrative like Judges, because the frustration or the confusion or the impatience perhaps that you feel is not an accident. It's actually in the text to make you like that because he wants you to know, the writer God who gave you this wants you to highlight exactly what Gideon is like. He is unsure of himself. He needs to be doubly sure, and God lets that happen. But at the same time, we also saw that he was resourceful, skillful, and diplomatic. Remember, he was able to gather tribes together and get them to do what they needed to do. But he also had a lack of faith in his own ability. He didn't always obey God to the letter. You remember that he did and then he didn't obey God when he came to cutting down Baal and Asherah. And sometimes he's quite reluctant to do what God has told him. In fact, I even said, and I'm not the person who came up with this idea, but he looks like a reluctant conscript at times. But let's see what happens in the final section of Gideon's story. Gideon the warrior it verges in chapter 8 verses 4 to 21 I'm, I'm going to read it to you Gideon and his 300 men exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit came to the Jordan and crossed it He said to the men of Succoth give me troops give my sorry give my troops some bread they are worn out and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkot said to him, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Penil and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Perennial, of Peniel, sorry, "When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower." Now, Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men. All of were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobar and Jogbahar, and attacked the unsuspecting army. Ziba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them routing their entire family. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunah, about whom you taunted me by saying, do you already have the hands of Zebra and Zelmuna in your possession? Why should we give you bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing with desert thorns and briars. He pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zebra and Zelmuna, what kind of men Did you kill at table? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jethar, his eldest son, he said, kill them but Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zebra and Zalmunna said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. Despite the hunger and the weariness of his men in verses 4 and 5, we find Gideon crossing the Jordan with his 300 men. You remember that was force was whittled down to 300 by God. He's doing that, says in verse 4, to chase the defeated kings of Midian. Gideon marches into these two towns, as you heard, Succoth and Peniel, And he asks for food. But they turn him down. What does he do? Well, he threatens them. He threatens them with violence. And that once this pursuit is over, he'll come back and unleash that violence. Verse 7. To Sukkoth he declares he will tear their flesh with briars. Verse 16. He comes back and takes the 70 elders of the town and does just that. In verse 8, Peniel, he threatens to knock down the tower of the city, and in verse 17, he does just that and kills all the men of the town. Gideon has crossed the the Jordan, and we see and notice that he is different. He's behaving in a way that we have not seen him behave before. If you are uncomfortable as we read that, if you think that this doesn't quite sound right, your hunch is correct. Gideon is behaving like a tyrant. He's behaving like a despot. Thoroughly wicked in his acts. And there's one thing that makes me notice this. Where is God in this story? We've heard no mention of the Lord at all. The Lord is absent in this whole sorry episode. I wonder if you remember last week. The Lord was all the time telling Gideon how to operate. That reluctant Gideon again and again asked to confirm who he was and confirm how it would be done, all the time needing God's assurance that he was with him. He didn't do anything until he was painfully sure that God was with him. And remember, It was painful at times to read. It was puzzling. It might have been bemusing. But now what do we find? Gideon is happy to march on his own. The resourcefulness, his diplomacy skills, they're completely absent here. Instead of those and instead of relying on God, now we see Gideon as his own master. A friend of mine often asks the question, how would you behave if you had power? In the first section, as I said, we saw Gideon using those diplomacy skills and he solved disputes between tribes of Israel. What does Gideon do now? He marches into Sukkoth and to Peniel, and there is no diplomacy. Instead, he terrorizes them, demands help from them, brutalizes them when they don't give it, this is a different Gideon. In verses 18 to 21, we find why. It's Gideon's revenge. The reason for Gideon's relentless pursuit of the two kings of Midian is revenge. This is a personal vendetta. He questions the king about the kind of men that they had killed at Tabor. They answer, verse 18, notice the answer. Men like you, each one with a bearing of a prince. Literally, the appearance of a king's son. Who were these men? They were Gideon's brothers. Gideon is full of vengeful anger and he orders them killed for that act and he asks his son Jephthah to do it. Jephthah won't do it. He's young but he's afraid. Is he afraid to kill? Is he afraid about the way his father is behaving and is unsure that he should go forward with this? Gideon picks up his sword and he does it himself. When a character enters a narrative like this, it's always for a reason. And we've never met Jethro before and here he is. Jethro is what we call a foil, a foil for Gideon. Because Jethro and his hesitancy and his unsureness of the act reminds us of what Gideon used to be like. Is Gideon's son. There's no real surprise that he reminds us of Gideon. But the contrast between Jetha and Gideon highlights who Gideon has become. Gideon has now become a tyrant. This is exactly like a Mesopotamian king would have acted and have always acted. He's now got the authority. He's the one who rules, and the narrator hints at that with the words from the defeated lips of the Midianite kings. They refer to Gideon's brothers as being like king's sons. By inference, Gideon also has the look of a prince. Now, not only does he have the look He's behaving like the king. Who is meant to be king? The Lord God is meant to be king of Israel. But again, where is the Lord in this story? Is the Lord king or is Gideon in charge? To further highlight this We have the strange episode of Gideon's ephod. It's the irony. We're going to see the irony of Gideon's name. Remember that first name when he chopped down the Baals and the Asherah pole? The name that was given to him, which I've asked you to remember, and maybe you've remembered, maybe you won't Jeroboam. Let Baal contend. Gideon comes back to his people, and what is the first thing they say to him? Verse 22, be our king, rule over us. And there's an irony in that because actually we've just been seeing Gideon act like this anyway. He's killed two kings because he himself is a king. What's Gideon's response, though? No. No. I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And I suggest that that's one of those pious answers that people sometimes give. I read that, and I suggest you should read that, and go, yeah, right. Boy, that is something. He's already assumed this role of king, as I think I've showed and we see. In keeping with his devoted to God pose, he asked them for gold and they make an ephod. Now, as a good question. What is an ephod? And the truth is no one actually really knows. A priest wore an ephod on his dress in the Old Testament with something like a badge. This is different. It's not to be worn like that. Instead, in Gideon's case, he says it functions to enable the people to inquire of God. It's there, this ephod, so that God can communicate to his people. Now, are you noticing something strange? The question is about this where does that idea come from? God has never needed anything to communicate to Gideon. Where did this idea come from? Has God's voice spoken to Gideon to raise the possibility of such a strange object? No. Again, Gideon is doing these things On his own. He's not relying on God, though on the face of it, he sounds like he's quite devoted to God. Always be careful of people who tell you how devoted to God they are. Perhaps it's a way that Gideon can now have a measure of control on what God says. We don't know. Before, God was the one who took the initiative to speak to Gideon. Now, with the ephod, it's Gideon who takes the lead. And the Israelites gladly give him gold for the ephod. When was the last time you saw Israelites give a leader gold to make something? Yes, that gold became the golden calf. How well did that go? Gideon uses the ornaments, the pendants, the robes from the defeated Midian kings, and so he makes the ephod and it's a thing of his own creation. He's incorporating objects, he's obtained booty from his personal vendetta. Gideon makes the ephod and what happens? Instead of it being an object to inquire of God, strange as that is, really, it itself, in verse 27, becomes an object of worship, where verse 27 tells us all Israel prostituted itself to it, meaning worshipping the object Gideon has made. Remember the golden calf? The golden ephod is exactly the same. All Israel worships them, and what are they doing? They're abandoning their God again. Gideon's own family is involved in this, in this false worship, and by implication, Gideon authorised, set it up, started it, supervised it. This false worship is down to Gideon. Midian is defeated and is never to be a problem again. But the question of the text, of course, is who now is the problem? Well, at the start of the story, it was Midian, but by the end of the story, the problem is internal. They've left God behind, bypassed Him again, ignored all that He's done, and they've been ab- and they've abandoned the true God. And the irony of all this. Is Jeroboam. Eventually you see him. He's retired. He has 70 sons, many wives, and concubines. I wonder what that sounds like to you. The only people who have so many wives, so many children, and so many concubines in the Bible is always a king. He's become the dynastic ruler, which he said he would not be. And he has a dynasty of sons to follow him. No sooner had Gideon died than the people turn back to Baal. And at the same time, they don't show kindness to Gideon's family. They quickly forget all that Gideon had done. In the end, what's happened to Jerob Baal, the one who will... Whom contended with Baal. The story finishes at Ofra. That's where it started, and that's a device that the, the person who wrote this is telling you to look back to the beginning, where the story ends, where it started. Look back to the beginning. To the beginning. Gideon tore down Baal's altars and burn the Asherah poles, the object of his family and the town idolatry. But what does Gideon end up doing? He's the one who sets up something even stranger, the gold ephod, and causes his own people and leads them back into a place where they again desert the living God and fall again into idolatry. The irony of Jeroboam, is that in the end he is the bringer of idolatry back to Israel. If you keep on reading, you'll see his own son behaving in a worse fashion than he ever did. Gideon in the end is a very troubled character for us and he's a failure. He's not someone you want to be like. He's not a good judge. Remember the cone and we said we were going down and the judges would follow us? Here is Gideon. They start following God tentatively. He's pious in appearance, but in the end, he's become proud. He was doing his own thing and in the end, abandoned the living Lord and caused his people to follow something else. And then they went back to Baal because they'd already been led into idolatry. What can we learn from this troubled story from Gideon? Gideon has certainly shown us that we need to watch our lives continually. Pride enters your life and ruins you. Gideon, particularly in leadership, it's vital that you are accountable. Gideon is not accountable to anyone and the only person who was accountable to God he cut off communication with. We need to remain humble before our Lord, before his word, and to be accountable as leaders. But all of us need to watch pride. It can enter our lives and ruin it. Get in the end, also does not persevere to the end. There is some way he started pretty well, but there's no value in starting well and finishing badly. The start ends up counting for nothing. We need to persevere. The writer of the Hebrews talked about running our race with perseverance, chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews, running with perseverance to finish the race set for us. The race that is set for us is a race lived in constant communion and with the living God. That's not the race Gideon ran. And Gideon, so Gideon thirdly, shows us what happens when you and God stop communicating. Gideon began doing things he thought was right. What he wanted to do. He made a decision and did it. We must keep reading our Bible. We must keep praying to our Lord. Keep following his ways. You must, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 is very well known. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Christ, our Lord and Saviour, came that he might take us to life eternal in him, and we are being changed by his spirit, moulded and shaped, renewed and transformed into the very image of our Saviour Jesus. We do that by trusting him with all our heart, leaning on on our own understanding and walk in perseverance and in faith the race set out for us gideon is a great reminder of the faithfulness of our lord jesus who persevered to the end to the cross that we might know him where to run our race we will fall all over the place at times we'll be looking for water bottles and all that sort of stuff but the idea is to keep going because it counts how we finish and whether we run that race. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Heavenly God, we we realise as we look at Gideon, it's a perplexing story. It's an odd one. But we realise how history is full of people who have started well and not finished well. Church history is full of leaders who have gone off the rails, who have done good things but have not finished well. Lord, we pray that you would uh, keep us on the firm path that you have set for us. Help us to trust in you with all our heart, to lean not on our own understanding, and acknowledge you in all that we do and say that you would make our path straight. We realise we will fall all over the place, pause, need a drink, blah, 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 but you are the one who empowers us by your spirit, and we pray keep us firm to run that race that Hebrews chapter 12 talks about in perseverance to finish it, the race that you have set for us.